David Leo Rice is the guest on Wake Island today, and during our conversation, we drill down into the emanation point of America's psychic crisis and dissect its rotten core. I hope you guys trip out on this wild wavelength we get on. This is definitely one of the headiest conversations I've had this year. David has this wild intuition where he can articulate the currents running through our atmosphere in this very clear and easy to understand way. I think his perspective on the uncanny is also so trippy and insightful. He's also insanely well-read. Before we get to it, I reference an article that he's written a few times throughout the interview, and it's called On Seediness, Undead Literature, and Reengaging with the American Mythic in the 2020s. There's a link to it in the show notes of this episode. I think if you enjoy the interview, I suggest that you read it as well. David Leo Rice is the author of Room in Dodge City, A Room in Dodge City Volume 2, and Angel House, all of which are out now. His first story collection, Drifter, comes out this June with 1111 Press, and he's got a fourth novel on the horizon called The New House, which is slated for spring 2022. David also teaches at the New School, which... If I were a student at, I'd be banging on his door every day to get into one of his classes. And lastly, will I spare you from my panhandling? Not today. It's begging time. (laughs) If you can help me support Wake Island, please do so by either donating or leaving a review or rating on iTunes. Leaving a review on iTunes or lighting up those stars literally takes less than a minute to do so. And the link to support the show is also in the show notes description. And if you have some dirty notes you want to drop in my locker, you can do so by leaving a voice message. That link is also in the episode. And if you're feeling coy or shy, you can write me your darkest fantasies, send nudes, or anything that the tinfoil hat doesn't filter out. You can send that to wakeislandbroadcast at gmail. Here it is, my interview with David Leo Rice. Well, tell me, tell me about your time in Kansas, because a it's a it's a state that really plays into I think a lot of your your books and your imagination. But I think it's also interesting because I I spent. A couple weeks of my summer, the summer of the pandemic in Kansas, and it really had like a big impact on me, not so much because of the state, but my associations with it, which are such uh-huh. uh, concentrated Americana, um, the Wizard of Oz, tornadoes, just this this point of the Midwest that I'd never been to. I'd been like above it and I'd been below it, and really all I knew about it was you know, that it was like William Burroughs' final resting place. But Mm -hmm. I do remember it was very strange to, like, get out of quarantine in New York. You know, I was just, like, totally adrift. I didn't have a job. I had just lost my job, actually. I was collecting unemployment. Mm -hmm. I had just nothing going on. The summer had just started. I also just hadn't traveled or gone on a vacation forever. So I was just like, you know what, fuck it, random place. But I'm going to go to Kansas and going to a, a state like Kansas during the pandemic was just so surreal because living in the city, you're just used to 
these really big changes happening where you see it on the street, whether it be life after you know 9-11 or the blackout or a snowstorm you know what i mean like you just you're you're accustomed to big changes but you Mm -hmm. don't it was very hard for me to adjust to being in that landscape and having everything be closed i mean almost everything i still went to like got takeout at some places and sat in a couple bars but um yeah it was just very odd so uh, what's your connection to that state and what was it like to be there during the pandemic yeah i mean a lot of the experiences you mentioned. I mean, I guess in the city, you know, partly because people live alone or like live in very atomized groups, maybe there's a sense that you experience history more directly. Like you're more caught up in what is either literally happening to that city, like 9-11 in New York, or like happening to the world, like maybe the financial crisis or, or COVID this year. Whereas in a place like Kansas, at least in a small town, it's like people live at least by and large, in like much tighter knit family groups. So it almost seems like history is family history in a way, you know, or like they have a sense of history, but it's like living history of like the stories that the like hundred year old grandfather's telling rather than, you know, the story that the newspapers are telling or something like that, you know? So, so it's like the same years are passing, but almost the way that, for example, my wife's grandfather just died at a hundred. So to like talk to him about the 20th century in a way, it's like you're asking him about his life. Right. So, you know, he's not going to talk about, uh, you know, Baudrillard or something. Right. But he will talk about like what it was like to be alive at any point during that time. You know, so there's like some different way that those scales of time play out that I think is really fascinating. Um, in terms of my connection, it's, it's my wife's family who were like Swedish Homestead Act people who came there in the 1870s or 80s. Um, so they've really been there for I don't know what it is now, like six or seven generations. Um, which to me, as like a Jew, I, I find like extremely interesting and fascinating of like this sense of long standing, like family life in one place, because that's totally the opposite of my experience where like every generation is somewhere different yeah. and, and almost almost like by default, like it would be. I've actually thought about um, moving back to Northampton, Massachusetts, where I grew up. But if I did that, it would be the first generation to ever return to where they grew up, which would be. You know, whereas for my wife, it's the exact opposite, that she's the first generation to leave. You know, so, so there's something really interesting to me about that. Yeah, in terms of, I mean, Burroughs, that, that's certainly a shared interest. And in a way, you know, something like Burroughs and The Wizard of Oz are almost like two sides of the same coin. You know, like they appear to be opposites if one's, you know, the image of wholesomeness and the other's the image of depravity. But I feel like both are equally American, you know, and that you were saying like Kansas has this sense of being almost the emanation point of like the essence of Americana. Yeah. That's a which good I think is totally, it. totally true. It's like, that's where like the ground opens up and it comes from <laughs> and something like, <laughs> and something like, uh, the wizard of Oz is processing it in one way and something like Burroughs is processing it in another way. But or just both... a wizard of Oz was like the first thing off the assembly line. And then mm-hmm. Burroughs came <laughs> much later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And something like wild at heart, you know, the David Lynch film is kind of a, is the Wizard of Oz essentially, you know, and it's like the way the relation between the Wizard of Oz and like LA is really fascinating because on the one hand, it's sort of the antidote to it. You know, it's like if Kansas is like certainly in the movie, in the story of the movie represents like all that's wholesome and Oz represents a kind of Hollywood, you know, land that's like magical, but also corrupt. On the one hand, you could say they're opposites, but on the other hand, they're totally interpenetrated in that 
almost everyone from Dorothy's life in Kansas reappears in Oz in a, in a different form. You know, so there's something something to that idea that Kansas is both like the opposite of either coast, let's say, you know, New York or L.A., but then it's also a kind of distillation of a lot of the spirit that that pervades that that more culture like culture production center of the coastal cities. It almost. Yeah, you're right. It is like the stage or the setting for where these stories are supposed to take place. And there's always this there always needs to be something terrible happening to it, whether it's like a supernatural thing or it's like a tornado. It is this weird ground zero for the American imagination for some sort of cataclysm and this need for a cataclysm to happen. Mm-hmm. 100%. And like you were saying about your experience going there in a state of flux or a state of desperation I mean, that's really the same story as the Homestead Act, right, of, of my wife's family being, you know, really destitute, like Scandinavians in probably Chicago, mostly, who were offered the chance to go there for, you know, to get free land or get land for a dollar or something. But under these kind of dire circumstances of like, you know, no one else thinks they can make it here. Do you want to try? It's <laughs> pretty much the story. Yeah. <laughs> right. Nobody could grow anything here. You know, it's not like the upper Midwest or the South or the East Coast where there's lush growing conditions I and mean, it's pretty punishing so i think a lot of you know people who are used to long winters and and just like almost starvation conditions in sweden for example took that chance and you know and made a go of it but i think it is it's part of why people are still very like staunchly religious i think because it's just like you're really out in the elements more like you said you know waiting for a, a cataclysm of some kind like you just feel it when a tornado comes through or even when we were there when the like insane cold front that like totally like like destroyed Texas came through, you know, you felt that sense of like driving down the road and it was like negative 20 out and it did feel like just some gather like Ragnarok is on its way. I mean, you really could have that sense. Oh my God, that's crazy. You know, it's funny you bring up the the religious thing because when I went there, I had never done this before, but I had done the, I downloaded the Couch Surfer app. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's where you can basically just crash on a stranger's couch. And, and the guy whose house I found in Kansas, his father was a really well-known preacher. And the guy, the dude I was staying with was not like, he wasn't preachy by any means, but I could definitely tell he was somebody that grew up with that kind of showmanship. And mm-hmm. it was just part of his 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 lexicon like it just everything kind of revolved around like all the traveling he had done was like through missionary work and Mm -hmm. his like attitude to taking in people was from this thing that he you know read in the bible and it's funny i wonder if you've ever thought about this but the idea of a transgressive travel novel and the fact Uh that i don't think one exists but when you go to a place like kansas you're entering into this place that I guess <laughs> for guys like at, like us has like it's a reality or it has realities that are nested within the location there's you know the internalized location there's like the sense of psychogeography and I think when you experience travel in that way you really open yourself up to the possibility of the uncanny which I think is something that you seems to be very like fertile ground for you as a as an author Deeply so. Yeah, the uncanny is one of my favorite effects and maybe even more so favorite uh, like mental states to try to induce in myself or to try to look for the uncanny wherever it wherever it's found. 
Um, of one, j- just as an aside, one couch surfing story that actually was uncanny in its own way. That you know, so when you register for couch surfing, you're supposed to, or, or you know, when you write to different people, you're supposed to send them like a personal letter, right? So if you mm-hmm. just say, you know, I'm coming through town, can I stay with you? People reject you because they're like, you should read about my interests and understand whatever. Yes, you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, so I was like, kind of talking to a friend about that, and I was like, oh, you know, it makes it like I understand why people want to do that, but it's frustrating to. Like if you just want a place to stay, like it's hard to engage with like all the stuff people are posting. And my friend's like, oh, I know, uh, you know, like I was frustrated by that too. And I <laughs> like cracked the code. I came up with a letter that seems really personal, but you could copy and paste it and anyone you send it to will, will, uh, accept it. And he's like, I'll just send it to you and then you could use it. And I said, okay. And he sent me this letter and literally every single line in the letter was about how much he wanted to see the sites in Lyon, France. Like every line was like, and then I want to see this statue. <laughs> how can I possibly use this anywhere else? <laughs> but I still like, like he was the kind of friend where like you never quite knew if he was like trolling you or if <laughs> he actually saw the world differently. But like I never mentioned it to him. But it just was so bizarre that somehow he thought that would be universal. <laughs> Oh, my God. Did you by any chance notice that there was so many uh, people that were nudists on there? Or it was, I think, some sort of code? Fascinating. No, I haven't been on in a little while. I I wonder if it's changed in in recent times. I think so. Like, I definitely got, I I, I don't think I used it again after Kansas, mainly just because people were like, dude, you're fucking nuts. There's a pandemic going on, which (laughs) is fair. Um, But I did notice in so many towns, there was uh, you were like, oh, this guy seems cool, he's interesting, and then at the end, it would be, uh, I don't wear clothes at home, or I'm a nudist, and I was uh-huh. just like, oh, like I mean, I don't have anything against nudity, I don't give a fuck, but I was just like, oh, this. It definitely started to feel like, um, like a kind of gay hookupy thing. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. I mean, yeah. It, just think about about the way things like that are uncanny, or the way that you were saying about a transgressive travel novel. I mean, it's interesting to think about, like, and I feel like, you know, one really big difference is that in the city, uh, like the city exists without you and in a way, even despite you. Right. So it seems like, you know, urban literature is often about people trying to like stake a place for themselves in the city against the city's indifference. Right. If you have, you know, notes from underground or nausea or stuff like that. Right. Or, you know, someone who, or, or a high life that, that I know we both are, are big fans of, you know, it's like the mm-hmm. city almost would be like happier if you just died, you know, <laughs> where, <laughs> right. I, I mean, you know, or but then that, you'd be like sublimated into its narrative. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, certainly LA, I mean, the idea of it being, you know, built on dead dreams it is part of the narrative, right? Yeah. Dead bodies too. I mean, and dead bodies for sure. Yeah. Um, but in the country or at least in a really tiny town, you know, and I'm interested, like narratively, I'm interested in towns that are almost too small, you know, which actually might relate to what you were saying about uh, like the couch surfing nudist culture is like a town that's so <laughs> small that people have to play multiple roles. Right. So like the fear in the city is that there's such a surplus of people that there's no role for you. Right. Whereas the fear of the tiny you know, a town that's like small enough is like it's so small, you can't be just one thing. So that, that I think comes from the, or generates the uncanny a little bit is like, can I just see myself as a drifter in this town? Or can I just see myself as a writer? Or can I, in this case, just see myself as like 
someone who they know's husband or whatever, you know, and the answer I think is no, is no. Like people start telling themselves stories about you, right? Yeah, because it doesn't matter how you see yourself in a small town. It's how everybody else sees you. You can't be Absolutely. like this anonymous ego like you can be in the city. You really, I mean, it's assuming you're in a small enough town where you're mixing with other people, you know, this romantic idea of the drifter that just comes in and pulls his hat down and orders a beer, doesn't say anything, doesn't really fly, you know, <laughs> people are going to engage with you. And I think all of these, these boundaries are, they start to become like really porous and they don't like separate what, you know, they're supposed to separate. So it does add this, um, this level of strangeness. Cause I think at least in America, the drifter or the person that comes into those towns with no clear purpose or agenda is seen with a kind of suspicion. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's like an unstable situation. So it's like, you know, it can become a power struggle where either the drifter is like the Pied Piper and comes and basically ruins the town or dominates the town or <laughs> the drifter is like the wicker man, right? He's like the sacrificial victim where the town strengthens itself by consuming that person. Right. Those are the two like typical ways that that story could go. Right. Right. You know, and maybe the, the like more uh, compromised story is the drifter is integrated into the town, but that's less dramatically exciting <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> Having spent a lot of time, especially this summer in these places, mm -hmm. there's there is something really transformative about going to them, at least from an imagine, imaginary standpoint where. I don't know, it feels like there's so much um, potential and maybe that's just like part of like, I don't know, being an observer and just having that kind of weird perspective. But like, how do you attribute that to the nexus of your imagination since it seems like such a, a formative idea? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. Yeah, I mean, the potential of towns is something I think about a lot. And like, I mean, part of it is like, you know, within the larger like American narrative, especially of the West, and you know, go West and, and all of that is like, I feel like there can be a kind of pride in living in a small town where you're like, I have my own property and my own family. And like, I'm, you know, I'm making a go of it here. But then maybe also a sort of shame of like, you know, like we stopped here, you know, this was good enough for us. Like we didn't go farther. You know what I mean? Whether you mean literally farther West or like farther in I don't know, into the culture, the way people in cities maybe have the sense of like a undefined but very palpable like cultural ambition for themselves to like either, you know, climb the ladder in some industry or to like be part of an evolving story. Whereas in a town, there's maybe more of a sense of like contented, but then slightly also disappointed like stasis and repetition, I think. Right. So, so that's one possibility. I mean, in terms of my own imagination, I mean, partly I think that I like to think of my mind as a kind of town, you know, and as a place that has like distinct location. I mean, that's a kind of psychogeography, right, that has distinct locations and distinct characters, which are both archetypes like, you know, the town, you know, like the baker and the butcher and whatever, you know, or like the town crazy guy or the town uh, rich guy, you know, like those different things that each town has the town, you know, person that people are telling secrets about or, or, or characters like that. And then also within those archetypes, there's a lot of room for like strange individuality, like because people appear to be something 
known, right? Like those town archetypes within that, they can be even stranger, I think. Yeah. And they're not reacting to so many other outsiders or strangers. I think that's when it gets exciting that they're, it's all happening within a vacuum. They're not like, oh, I'm going to be different than that other different guy. It really forms its own really absolute, authentic, strange. And I'm assuming this is why so much like folk and outsider art like doesn't often always come from cities. Definitely. And the sense of privacy, too, of like having your own sanctum, whether it's literally your house or, you know, outside artists like working in the basement or something like that. And then the mental corollary of that of being like, you know, I'm really making this art, not necessarily just for myself, but like I'm making it within this sort of intimate realm rather than saying, you know, I'm trying to get into the MoMA and I have to, you know, show up at this party and get reviewed in this paper, you know, and the thing that happens in the city. Right. That, yeah, there's some way. I mean, you know, I, I've um, I've always been interested in mysticism and, and studied that a little bit that in that, you know, view of the world, I think there's always the sense that like the individual can access the infinite. But almost only when they're alone, which is true of psychedelics, too, in a sense, right, that like you can tunnel into yourself and discover some vast space, whereas the city is like the in-between space of like a lot of people, Hmm. but by that same token, not infinite. So the city in that regard is further from the infinite, even though it's more crowded. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about that, that idea that you brought up is the fact that America is physically laid out in service to the automobile industry and it's not (laughs) in service of community or humanity. It's really in my opinion, and maybe this is like really cynical, but I feel like it's designed to isolate human beings and circulate them into corporate loops of gas stations and Walmarts and this erosion of mom and pop shops. And in some ways, I kind of felt like your book of short stories, The Drifter, is a meditation, like is not directly, but is in some way a meditation on that, like fantasizing about the ghost or psychic energy that exists in these detached or isolated places that also, as you mentioned, have this, this added layer of the, the lone person that the, the, like, this is the only, it almost takes something as spiritually degrading as being in uh, a suburb surrounded by strip malls and gas stations and then nothing else to, to have this transgressive transformation, uh, especially when you equate it to in a spiritual sense. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, you know, I think like the beauty and tragedy of America is that there is a lot of like unabsorbed or unused energy, you know, that there's, I, I don't know if the story, like where this comes from or, or if it's true, but I heard somewhere that when they were first planning out the post-war suburbs, so like, it would be like, um, you know, parts of Long Island and things like that. I don't know if it would have been like the New York mayor or maybe even the president, but somebody who, you know, was trying to oversee this was talking to the urban planners. And he said, you know, however you design these suburbs, you know, in this sort of idea of like planned communities that would be the same everywhere. But he's like, you know, however you design them, make sure that there's nowhere for the men to meet. Because I guess they already had this fear that like people were returning from World War II, if enough of them got together, some kind of like broad-based social movement could start for, for you know, better or worse from, from either point of view. You know what I mean? But, but like these things were designed specifically to isolate people. 
and wow. to say that, you know, you get your, your GI bill and stuff, but like, don't ask for more than that, you know, and don't start like, like, you know, I think they knew that something had happened to people in the war that they didn't know what it was, but they didn't want to find out. Or they knew exactly what it was and they didn't want these guys to be talking about it and realizing like, oh, not only did I kill somebody, but I have this and I have all this like guilt and, and trauma, but then I have this pervasive sense of loneliness and isolation that I can't put my finger on because I should be happy. I have everything that I need, right? I have my 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 yard, I have my house, I have my car. Like, why am I so unhappy? Exactly. Or, or Yeah, and, and to make them, even if they did have that realization, to make them not know that anyone else felt that way, exactly. right? To like isolate them with like, keeping people feeling ashamed of feeling that way, feeling that way rather than empowered by being like, oh, everyone feels this way. Maybe there's a good reason why. Do you ever feel like the internet is almost become an extension of that in a, in a weird way, even though it's like technically the opposite of it? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, related to the idea of like unabsorbed energies in the sense that like there are these you know, you could call them ghosts or, or like, you know, the way we're talking about Kansas is like an emanation point of a kind of Americana. You know, I feel like there's certain gas stations or certain uh, billboards or certain skylines or just like moments when you get a glimpse of some other world folded into America. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, in, the internet functions the same way that, that I sort of have this feeling about the internet that maybe this is true in a lot of ways about historical development that with the internet, you had an age of demons and now you have an age of gods. And the difference is that the age of demons is chaotic, right? So like maybe the late nineties up through, I don't know, 2005 or something like that. Yeah. There were the tricksters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was scary, you know, and there was like, oh, you know, people are going to lure your kids away through chat rooms and, you know, people have fake avatars or kids are going to buy whatever drugs or something like, you know, which all of which may be true, but like the fear of the internet was a fear of tricksters, right? But but there was also the sense that, uh, you know, you could really find your tribe or you could find things that would really shock you or that would really be like a glimpse of a forbidden world somehow. And that over the course of certainly the 2010s and maybe before that, that age of demons and like those tricksters and, you know, and rogues and jesters and all, all those types of spirits that were in the internet got consolidated into this just like authoritarian system of, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Bank of America, you know, it got totally taken over by the gods. And the scary thing about it is that I feel like now people feel safer. You know, it's your information is encrypted and, you know, whatever. But like the actual fear, the actual danger is much deeper. Like the actual damage that that does to the idea of even having a culture is a lot worse than just like weirdos in chat rooms. (laughs) Yeah. It's an erasure of culture. I mean, this is part mm-hmm. of what the tricksters did in the '90s, or I don't know if we want to call them the tricksters, but I, I kind of like that. But you know, yeah. there, there was—I remember there was a documentary about like what would it be like to like live in a house where it was just broadcasted from all the time. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing this in like whatever the mid '90s and thinking like, "Wow, this is so what a crazy, wild, experimental idea." Yet now that idea is something that we do to ourselves in broadcasting our lives through whatever YouTube or Instagram or Twitter. And it's like part of the grift, which I think is part of 
a the uh, <laughs> the American psyche, but it's also part of the trickster. And I think before you get to the god level, there's also like the ghoul troll level that has also mm-hmm. come from all of this. That seems like how can we form communities around antisocial behavior and what comes of that and i think we just you know we've just seen it in the last four years and especially Uh in january of this this year 2021 yeah i mean it's interesting if that if the january events represent the edge of the internet i mean if that's the point where something became real oh it has or or if it represents the further extent though in that it's a real event that was largely experienced by everyone who wasn't there as an internet event and if like that's where it's legacy will live i don't know but it's an interesting question of like did it prove where the limit of the internet is or did the internet just like expand to swallow that too but it also felt like a physical manifestation of what was happening on those message boards like it seemed like it's kind of like what we were talking about the an isolated person wanting to become an artist and just kind of coming up with this you know whatever weird aesthetic or this outsider folk aesthetic it really seemed like that got merged with just total isolation and fear so it felt like it was a mix of this absurd internet meme culture that had a physical manifestation i mean i'm specifically thinking about the guy with the fucking horns on his head and all the just weird um theatrics of it but then there was this more to me extreme manifestation of isolation and fear where they were like oh we're wearing fatigues and and bulletproof vests and going to use these flags as batons and it was just like i think to them they saw it as we're going to look tough and like militaristic, but I saw it as in, fuck, we're so afraid. We're afraid of our own shadow and we need guns. We need to look like we're the kind of people that experience combat, yet you look at them and you're like, you're so fucking overweight. Like you would never survive in a fight. Right. And it, it was this almost like it felt like a portal had opened up from, I think what you were talking about in this, somewhere in the timeline of the internet and it, it happened. They came out and they actually looked more fucking nuts than I ever imagined <laughs> this fucking like basement person that you never see looking. For sure. Yeah. And, and I guess, yeah, it's like the horror and the tragedy of it has something to do with aloneness, right? Like you could say, I mean, God knows what their what their motivations were, but like you maybe it partly was like a desire to finally not be alone, right? To be like, we showed up for our cause and now we're going to be rewarded for it. And, you know, we'll take over the government. It'll be our, you know, like fantasy country. I, I don't know what they want, but that in a way it's like, I almost feel bad for them, but like at the last moment, like Trump just abandoned them too. And just like, they were like, there was almost like the deepest alonement. alonement. So like the thing that they had done <laughs> self just was like, fuck you. Like, you know, you take the fall. I'm good. You know, and that, that like, I found it really fascinating, the footage of Trump himself watching it on TV. Ooh, I haven't seen that. There's bizarre shit of him watching it and like dancing to these weird like 80s like disco songs with his entire family. There's like something out of, I mean, the whole thing, like there's no, it's beyond Lynch yet. Like there's no one to compare it to exactly. But it somehow that moment in this logic of like spectatorship and watching versus being watched was to me almost like the most poignant, you know, that Trump himself being just like a reality TV guy who was used to being watched in this last moment became the watcher. You know, and there's things of like those guys, 
you know, whatever they were doing, like constantly checking Twitter for updates from him, which I guess would come from him watching the feed of it, you know, and live streaming themselves. And it was like the, it almost felt like a VR event. Like, so like there was some snarl between if they knew that they were in real space, you know, and then I of course felt that way watching it on my computer. I'm like, is this really happening? And like, what is it, in what way do I even, am I even capable of processing what it means for it to really be happening versus <laughs> being something that I'm watching on my computer? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the reality of my life is that I'm watching it on the computer and yet my perception of it is that this is really happening. You know what I mean? And like that mental, like that starts to like turn your brain into something that almost like has to just retreat from even considering it. Yeah. Well, especially when you're watching something that is on the news, but is actually uh, a weird sense of theater by definition. Mm -hmm. I mean, it had like a totally performative element to it. It was just this really dazzling and grotesque display of cosplay, but it was all done under the guise of redemption and a fight for the American mm -hmm. soul, which is so crazy that it had this much deeper, like it wasn't just a riot that was a reaction out of something bad that happened. It had some, there was a sense of something ephemeral that they were trying to defend or trying to redeem that just wasn't clear. And you could tell to me what was most striking was once they got in there you could tell they didn't know what the fuck to do. And they're just mm -hmm. kind of ambling around and, you know, like literally. Yeah. Just, Taking like, selfies. Like kinda yeah. Like just, yeah. It looked like yeah, in a video yeah. game when you stop playing and the, like the character just kind of moves in place. It had that, that feel where you could tell like, they were like, Oh shit, we made it in. We broke the third wall. We, we transgressed. We came into the place that we were told that we were, not allowed to go into that that somehow by acting upon this transgression something would change and something would happen and the only thing that happened was that their leader turned their back on them exactly and in a way, i mean a lot of people have have mentioned this before me but in a way they're getting in there and then not knowing what to do is a perfect encapsulation of the entire presidency which seemed to be about storming the seat of power to say fuck you to it but then whether or not they intended for it to succeed, they seem to not have any ideas once it did. You know, so in a way, it's like Trump's entire years was, I mean, God knows what happened, but picture of just sitting there eating cheeseburgers and like screaming at the TV. No, I mean, he also <laughs> didn't do any of the shit right. that he said he was going right. to do. He didn't build the I know, fucking wall. I know. He didn't I know, I know. get the minimum wage increase. Like he, uh, the infrastructure didn't change. Like really like all these things. He didn't end the wars, right? <laughs> no, he didn't yeah. end the wars. He like, if anything, intensified them. I think we all knew that there was a grift happening and then it happened. And, and, and the, the people that were most affected by it, at least in my mind, were his, were his followers. I think for mm -hmm. liberals, he definitely like owned them and pissed them off, but their fucking lives didn't change. For sure. No. And a lot, a lot of people like became wealthier talking about it. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, no, I mean, that's, I think Adam Curtis was saying that that's his understanding of what QAnon really is, is like an explanation to the people who need it of why Trump didn't do anything. You know, that it was he was held back by whatever forces that they say are holding him back. Oh, my you God. Know? But there's something very American about that, too, that it's like, you know, we're always striving for something. And it's like you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Because if you do get it, then you, know, then you have to see what to do with it. 
right? Or, or it starts to not be what you thought it was. Or you start to want the next thing. Whereas if you don't get it, you feel as though something's held you back or there's some reason why, you know, your, your dream was tarnished for whatever reason. You know, so I feel like America is, it's unsurprising that it's a country where like ego is out of control. You know, there's like, we've never found a way to transcend uh, like wanting the next thing, like wanting more space. Want, you know, that's why I'm so interested in California as like the end of the line. You know, it's like a place, like the final sunset, you know, is Sunset Boulevard. And, and like at that point, you warp back into fantasy. You know, so the entire Trump phenomenon is a kind of, you know, blurred fantasy and reality in a way that was very disturbing, but also very, uh, had a lot of like fertile possibilities for thinking about the American condition. And the QAnon part that you mentioned is also so perfect because, you know, it is it is this new religion that seemed to have organically happened during his presidency. And it's kind of back to the thing that you were saying that it really takes a certain isolation, whether it, you know, you do it through prayer or meditation. But in this case, it was like an ideological, political isolation that spawned this actual fucking religion you know i i can't speak too intelligently about it because i don't know like the true definition of it but as far as i do know is that that you know that there is this unknown insider that is in politics but you don't know who he is and Mm -hmm. he's telling you things and you're supposed to act on them and like the as it's happening it's almost like like the the message boards are a bible of sorts and the and the story is happening in real time but it's like complete uh, absurd it's just absurdism that doesn't you know like so much of it didn't come to any kind of fruition but when you when you speak to people that like believe in it you're just like man how did this happen like, how did you get in so deep into this and how did this like take root it, it's just like it, to me that was like that detail was just it, it, like I can't even speak on it because it just it's so surreal it's so perfect and I think the linchpin to the whole fucking thing is that these people think that they can save America by aligning it with a past that they were a never even fucking part of and it's a past that America as a whole just has not reckoned with and Mm -hmm. in a sense that is like the definition of cultural entropy is just by wanting to like go back to this like whatever make america great again and this train the swamp thing without actually knowing or being able to define what america is what the swamp is and what you want to have happen when this this thing does happen it's almost like the uh the rapture but at least in the rapture, you assume that we all fucking go to heaven. But for them, it's like, what? And then we become real Americans and we all have a gun? Like, what's the, what's the end game? What, to me, it's just, it's, it's, it's entropy made physical. Like, it almost seems like a, a spiritual parasite. Yeah, and a spiritual panic. You know, I almost feel like, like yeah. the way you could illustrate that entropy is almost like America feels like, uh, like a giant bag where all the air is going out and we're starting to panic of like, there's no, you know, you're starting to have this feeling that like we have to get out somehow or like get some more air in here, you know? And, and it's like that there's no new story or no, 
you know, it's like another, you know, people say like the two cardinal sins of American history are like slavery and the genocide of the Native Americans, mm -hmm. which seems definitely true. But but you could also add like a third is like somehow never, never like agreeing on a goal or like never being sure if we want it to be new or not. You know, so it's like the idea of like people coming from, I mean, I'm most familiar with people coming from Europe, but it, probably people coming from anywhere in the world having this anxiety about how new of a life do you want? So you have people stuck between on the one hand, you know, genuinely seeking a new start, but on the other hand, constantly feeling like either they're losing their culture or somebody's taking their culture or just that they don't have enough of a culture and therefore have to like invent something historical, you know? So I feel like it's that, you know, I'm interested in this idea from a mystical point of view is like how much of yourself can you give up in order to change? You know, and, and like, I think it is like truly profound change is possible, but it's really difficult because a lot of you wants to hold on to who you were before. And historically, I, I think that's some part of the crisis that America seems to be having is people, you know, that like make America great again, you know, could refer to a past that didn't exist, but it refers to a longing that clearly exists. Right. And the people are like, we want some grounding. We want something like firm to stand on, but we don't want it to be old. Right. So, you know, which is a contradiction in terms like either, you know, if you go to like I've spent a lot of time in this village in Italy and I feel like there people don't have. It's like dialed down on both sides, right, that people don't have like wild hopes for the future, but they also don't have a terror of like standing over a void. You know, like their past is very clear to them and they're just like, we've lived in this village and this is what we eat and this is what we do. And it's kind of seems as though the parameters are narrower. Whereas like the beautiful thing about America is that like wildly, or, you know, someone can just be like, I'm going to write Moby Dick and, and do it. You know, that that really can happen. But it also leads to this terror where people have a desperation to find something to hold on to that isn't there. And therefore they try to like establish it by fiat which leads to these kind of fascist movements, which can happen in Europe too. But, but like the American version of it has a distinct set of like psychic crises, I think. And just like a bigness to it. I mean, it, it reminds me, I'm thinking of a line that you had written in an article called On Seediness, Undead Literature, and Reengaging with the American Myth in the 2020s. And you say, the alternative is to sink even deeper into toxicity because the notion of a permanently stagnant narrative is an illusion. Time moves on regardless. Seediness is therefore volatile. If the seeds remain unattended, they degenerate. Yeah, I think that's totally true in that it's, you know, I don't know if there can be like mass movements. You know, I, I mean, one, one interesting thing this might be another Adam Curtis idea also, but is this idea that, you know, major cultural narratives about, you know, the purpose of society and about the future led to like horrible places in the 20th century, right? Both in terms of, of Nazism and, and communism in a lot of ways. So I think understandably people who now would, you know, want to define themselves as liberal in some way are afraid of that you know, and basically ha have returned to saying, like, we can't tell major narratives, you know, we have to just like, live and let live or just kind of, you know, keep the ship afloat, which mm -hmm. is reasonable, but doesn't seem to be working, right? Because I think that those seeds, 
you know, like, like the article was saying, it's like if time moves on, people's desperation for a major story or for a sense of like, what are we all doing here grows. And if the only people offering it are offering the same just like ethno fascist stories as the 20th century dictators offered, then that story will win because it's really like running without any competition. You know, so I think that's the interesting question is like, is it possible for a positive overarching story that people actually believe in to emerge? Or is it as soon as you start talking about like mass belief like that, does it lead to a dark place? But I think it also hinges on what the medium is that you're telling it. I think um, telling this story through a media, like news media, or through social media is just not going to cut it. It's going to keep us in this in this small space. Like I think the most transgressive aspect of what language and art can do is to animate an idea or a scenario that activates something within us. Like we really need and this is maybe me making a case for why it's important to read and what seems to be like the issue with the, like we're talking about the, these narratives that I don't think people are are necessarily getting or understanding because of the medium of which uh, of which through they're shared and, and also not knowing uh, like trying trying to satisfy a need through something that can't satisfy it. Right. So if you think the reason you're logging onto social media is to like communicate with your friends or to you know check the news or whatever people tell themselves. But it gets its hooks into you because people have a deeper need for narrative or a deeper need for connection. That's when it becomes dangerous. Right. Whereas when you pick up a book, if you know that the reason you're reading it is because you have that deep need for narrative, it seems like there's something very healthy about that because it's giving you what you think it's giving you. Right. And you have another great quote just to follow you up with a quote by you <laughs> is as I see it the best life is one spent voluntarily absorbed in something worth being absorbed in while the worst life is one spent involuntarily absorbed in something not worth being absorbed in and between these two poles is the desert of the ego the fear of not being absorbed in anything and hence being stuck with yourself as you really are I love that Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, that it's like we have, you know, we have attention, which maybe is the same thing as just your life, right? But it, you know, your ability to conceive of what to pay attention to. Yeah, and it has value. S certainly. And the scary thing is it has value to other people too. So if you don't right. see the value in it, someone else will and will, will like relieve you of the burden of it. Well, so successfully, like I think they've actually, I mean, this is the thing that everybody agrees on is that where where did our fucking attention go we'd have this pandemic and what does everybody complain about like oh i don't know i don't i can't read uh i stopped watching movies and you know like i want to just watch ambient television like it, they fucking won you know i mean i'm not saying it in a way that like i'm better i look at my phone every like two seconds basically you know what i mean mm -hmm. and i do it mindlessly like i'm at a casino but i'm not even winning anything i'm just watching my like life pass by and as an empty calorie where there's no narrative behind it yeah it's like you're at a casino and you're the chip that someone else is playing with. <laughs> yeah that's exactly what it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know and it's scary because i think it you know this relates to you know like american ideas of freedom too in that you know, people log, you know, lock in or log in to this idea that, 
you know, that you should be free, which I guess could mean your attention should be your own. But if you're not conscious of what you're doing with it, you know, you know, for example, I, I'm like you said, I'm guilty of this too, right? That if I think about, uh, if I go on to, you know, Criterion Collection, or if I look at my books and I'm like, I could spend two hours and watch a real, like really watch a movie or like really read a book. And I know that that would be two hours well spent. And sometimes I do it, but the times when I fail to do it, it's like another part of my mind is like, well, but I don't want to give that much time to that or that much attention to that. And that's when you quickly become susceptible to just losing those two hours doing nothing because you haven't taken the plunge to actually invest your attention in something. And that's when, you know, it's like the Burroughs line, uh, you can't hide the mark inside, right? It's like, that's when like <laughs> these other, you know, these, these like junk dealers like out in the world see, you know, see the mark and they come and start to prey on the fact that you haven't been confident enough with your own attention to actually decide what to spend it on. All of that is very anxiety inducing. And mm -hmm. I think this might be a stretch, but it almost feels like, and this is something that I definitely do, where I feel like for me to engage with art, I need, like if I'm reading a book, I need to have the TV going on in the background. I need to occasionally like look at my phone. I need to like almost indulge in my anxiety to be able to lean in. I guess it's like in the same way that like people take um, Adderall or speed to feel calmer. It's almost like that mm -hmm. same weird, like a spiritual bipolar disorder that you're just like, oh my God, I just need to like blanket myself in media to focus in on one thing. And I think that's something that's very alarming. Yeah. What relates to, you know, we talked about the uncanny, this idea relates to the idea of the eerie, which could be like, a you know, like when people describe the room as like eerily quiet or like you have a sense that there's a presence that should be there that isn't. And like, that's why you turn on the TV or, you know, it's like you need a certain amount of noise around you not to feel that eerie sense. Totally. And I want to like also talk about something that I thought was very fascinating in this article. And it's about the idea of seediness, which I think we've been talking about in terms of America and all of this madness. But what do you think it is that makes the American aesthetic so morally seedy? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something I've really thought about a lot. And I think worked through in, in fiction too, is like the idea of what are, you know, why am I drawn to seedy locations or seedy situations and characters and like is there something about me that is universal like like am i prototypically american in a, in the way that my attention goes there you know so so i guess like you know a basic definition of the seedy is literally to think of the idea of seeds as like a place where some potential is lurking but it hasn't sprouted yet you know so it can be kind of distasteful you know, if you think of like, you know, spilled semen or something being like seeds that haven't grown, right? Or people talk about a seedy hotel or a seedy part of town or seedy nightclub is seen as a negative thing, which I suppose it could be. But in my taxonomy, it's a positive thing because it's a place where either, I mean, this almost, my feeling bifurcates here because it depends on if you have a sense of fate or not, but you could say either in a seedy location it's undetermined what's going to happen, right? So if you get off the you know highway at that exit and go to this place and hang out, like you don't know what's going to happen, or if you you know go down that um, 
path in the park and, you know, cross, cross the edge and, you know, you'll end up in a new world and you'll learn something. Right. Or if you do mix in an idea of fate, you could say a seedy place is where something is waiting to happen to you, but you don't know what it is yet. Right. But it's like, if you go there, you know, something you'll change in some way, right. Or you'll have an encounter of some kind, right. Which is, you know, I think a lot of stories are built with that idea is it's like something happens to knock the character out of their normal life. And then the story begins, right? So like in a noir story, it's like the detective takes on the case, right? But then they can enter the CD world that they wouldn't have entered otherwise. Right. Right. Or, uh, you know, like in Murakami books, it's like always somebody like loses their job or somebody's wife leaves them. That's like the only way that Murakami stories function. <laughs> <laughs> but as soon as one or the other happens, and actually, like you were talking about with the trip this summer, you know, it's like if something wakes you up out of the routine of your life, the experience can be negative. Maybe it's most often negative, but then what it leads to can be positive insofar as it takes you into the CD because it's like something new needs to grow now namely like you i guess the next part of your life ha has to start taking root and like you move through this like seedy underbelly and i think the reason on a more historical level the reason why america has that quality is for some of the reasons we were we were talking about before of like people constantly coming here for a new life you know and it being the new world and seemingly you know or at least the story it tells about itself is like not burdened by you know, the class systems of Europe or by the, you know, ethnic tensions of a place that, say, refugees have managed to escape from or something like that. But I think the seedy feeling is like it's an imperfect, like it's not really a new start. You know what I mean? Like like you managed, you know, I'm interested in, in Jewish mythology, so it's sort of like you've managed to escape to Egypt. But by the time you get to Israel, like you're going to fuck it up again. <laughs> it's not, it's not going to be a new start of, of everything being, you know, milk and honey. You know, you know, and maybe because just humans are how they are. So like there's something in you that you will just recreate wherever you go. And that relates to seediness too, and that people literally create new people. <laughs> right? You know, I mean that that's a pretty direct connection, right? And like all of the foibles of humanity are just gonna be continually uh, reiterated. You know, and maybe they can slowly change over time, but certainly not not as fast as certain parts of our conscious mind would would hope that they would. When you're taken out of the routine of your life, it opens up the door to seediness. Because I think about, as you mentioned, when I felt just so lost over the summer between the pandemic and just personal shit in my life and not having a job and not having money and just being like in a state of, of emotional freefall, but also just being like, I don't want to sit at home and feel this way. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I might as well do what my my heart tells me to, which is to drift. But when you do so, you're really relegated to these in-between way stations, which are like parks, rest stops, truck stops, chain hotels, fast food places. And it made me realize like, those are the only consistent communal spaces that we have in America. And that is where seediness usually happens. It's almost as though mm -hmm. there's something like, there's some sort of roach-like power to these places that can withstand anything because there's like a utilitarian aspect to it that attracts a very like primal and immediate need for escape like drugs or sex, but not culture or art. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those places maybe are the one thing 
that all Americans have in common, which is like being on the move. You know what I mean? That like the way, you know, we we're talking about the suburbs before, it's like the places and the ways that people want to live are really like opposed to each other, right? It's like why you have, you know, like you were saying before, of like someone will shoot you for coming in their backyard. You know, there's something very American about that of people like defending their private property. And the whole idea of private property is kind of a, I mean, America didn't invent it, but it's very like definitive of America. Whereas I think those kind of public places along the road, and I love, you know, all, all my books are like, people in motels and, you know, I love like the strip, like the road that kind of goes between the main street of the town and the highway. You know, the strip is to me the most interesting part, you know, and something about those places, it's like people are thrust together because even if they're going different places and have different goals and, and, and are maybe mutually suspicious of each other, they nevertheless are there together, right? Like you can't avoid, like if you're on the road, you can't avoid ending up at a gas station. Like you just will if you yeah, drive long Yeah, enough. which is the, you know, it's crazy. It's the most dangerous job. Really? Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's liquor store and convenience store, which I equate with uh, wow. the, the convenience store by the gas station. But those are apparently the two most dangerous jobs in America. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it is something about the open road is it is super fascinating. And it's like, you know, this is, almost relates to some of the stuff we were saying about QAnon, too, that, you know, I've always been interested in, like, neo-medievalism, you know, ways in which these kind of, like, you know, images that you would see in, like, a medieval carnival or a pageant or, you know, Hieronymus Bosch or something like that keep cropping up again in what we would consider our modern world. You know, so something like QAnon is, you know, like political suspicion turning into, like, literal monsters, right? Or, like, they're, fr you know, afraid of whatever demonic forces they think are out there. And something like being at a rest stop or a gas station, you can have that feeling too, that it's like there are people who seem to be out of like a myth or seem to have like walked through a portal and like entered this world and might disappear from it as soon as you leave. And maybe you seem that way to people too. Totally, because we're all alone. I mm -hmm. think like, I think maybe that's the, the thing is that we can all agree that we all feel very lonely at this moment. And this, this place is in fact designed to fulfill like some very basic needs which means go to the bathroom buy some food and leave i had a really beautiful moment once when i went with a friend to tunisia and we were traveling around in one of those like uh kind of communal vans you know that like doesn't go until it gets enough people and then you sort of like decide where to go and so like we were going in this van with all these people and it was ramadan and you know, nobody could eat till the sun went down. Like all these people had different things. And like wherever we stopped, like little kids would come by on bikes and they would have, you know, bread or I don't know, little like satchels of snacks and stuff. And they would sell it to whoever was in the van with us. And, you know, everyone was like checking their watches and like uh, getting kind of antsy. It's like watching the sun, watching the sun. And as soon as it went down, the driver pulled off in like the next gas station and got out and people ran in and there was like 10 other vans there and just everyone was crammed into this gas station, like frantically eating all these snacks they got from the road. <laughs> it was just kind of beautiful. It was like a, you know, and like, you know, I couldn't understand what people were saying, but they were kind of like animatedly talking to each other. And, you know, it felt as though the religious ritual had done its purpose, at least in the regard of like strengthening the community. Yeah. You know? Yeah, actually it did. And it, and it turned that in between location into a place of community instead of mm -hmm. just like a place you pass through and take a shit in. 
Yeah, and maybe people are doing that too, and that 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 also had a kind of sacred quality to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's like mm-hmm. it, it had it transcended its just utilitarian purpose and become an actual thing that we don't have in America, where like there's a sense of community happening and a and a shared sense of uh, happiness. Absolutely. Yeah, and it. I mean, maybe that's almost an optimistic idea about transgressive art is there or something I think about a lot is like um, finding something sacred within like a deconsecrated or like within a fallen world. Right. So, so you could say that like a fascist impulse is to like reconsecrate, right. To say, you know, we've fallen because of X, Y, and Z and we need to like kill everybody and then we'll restore, you know, the garden of Eden, right. Or we'll return to this perfect state that we were, you know, and that you clearly is, you know, you see where that goes. But I feel like a transgressive attitude is almost the opposite, where it's like the world is fallen in some ways, or like there is, you know, a place like a gas station or a place like a McDonald's or, um, you know, a Motel 6 is trashy and like dirty and chunky and, you know, seedy, like we were saying. But that actually as an artist, your goal is to celebrate that and to say even within this, there might be something beautiful rather than to cover it up, which is more like propaganda, you know, to say that it isn't this way. So it seems like the two propagandistic things are either to say it isn't this way or to say, if it is this way, it's somebody's fault and they should be punished for it. Whereas the artistic attitude is to say it is this way, but actually it's nobody's fault and we can like embrace that. And even within that, find something glorious. Hmm. It makes me wonder, does art exist to generate a normative effect on the culture? And if so, by making this thing seem okay, it doing its job? It's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, because I suppose it could go too far and make people pass it, right? That's another form of propaganda, I guess, is art that's like, everything's okay the way it is, so don't do anything, right? I mean, that that isn't what you would want to do. Or it's but just I suppose, like decorative. Yeah, or it's just decorative, right? It's just like uh, pure escapism or pure commerce, right? It's like Hallmark cards and, and whatever. Whereas I suppose for me, like a more, you know, a mystical attitude toward art would be that those things around you contain within them something that if you explore it enough, you'll discover. Right. Or that, you know, to use the word portal again, it's like that rest stop or that, you know, casino in the dead of night or that half empty ocean liner or whatever kind of setting you want to use has the potential within it to lead somewhere really interesting if you explore it and if you really sort of try to see what it's saying or hear what it's saying, you know, and that, and it's, I think it's also why I like horror a lot too, because horror is often about something like emerging from within your town, for example, or from within your house, right? You discover the house is haunted. Or now if you think about like um, tech horror, right? It's like within the algorithms you already use, there's some spooky spirit within it or something dangerous. Right. That on the surface is presented as negative. It's like you want to escape that thing or exercise that thing. But I think as a viewer, it's like the deeper experience of it is something positive. Right. It's actually exciting that that spirit could come through your computer or that aliens could come. It's like you want to watch the movie because you want to believe that something like that is possible. Once again, to to quote yourself, 10 years ago, I imagined that David Lynch had transcended America by rendering it brilliantly. And I wanted to follow in his footsteps. But now that I see that he never escaped, 
Instead, he found an art form that made it possible to stay here without sinking in, a means of contacting the tremendous corpse rotting everywhere underfoot and making something beautiful out of that contact. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that that's sort of why, you know, I like this idea of art as a method, you know, and as something that you really do rather than be. I mean, I, I very tangibly feel my own development in that sense that I think, you know, 10 years ago, like the article was saying, you know, I did have this maybe more Im immature idea of transcendence, you know, or that, that like I want to leave all this behind or I want to be, I don't know, un untouchable in some way. I don't want to be subject to the things that are like in the, you know, that, that are in the shared world, you know, whereas I think now I have much more of a like sociable or communal attitude toward it, which is like, I want to find a way to be in it, you know, to be in that rest stop with everybody, but almost like synced up to my own religion, the same way that those people in Tunisia were synced up to their religion. Yeah, I fear communal religion in a way, you know, like I'm never, you know, so going back to the idea of the small towns too, like I'm never going to be like going to church with everyone in town, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I don't want to be just like disconnected from everything. So for me, I guess it's a kind of personal religion of a certain like ever changing creative attitude toward the world, which in its, in the way that it's always changing is actually kind of eternal. Totally. And you can never drift if you always have a fixed target. I think that's mm -hmm. what makes that that state of being so compelling and, and romantic and also such a fertile place for you to investigate is that you're moving in part of the same ocean as everyone else, but you're still outside of it. And there's something very, I don't know, there's very, it's, it's an exciting place to be in. And, and it seems ever like self replenishing, you know, it's like, an, yes. you know, people talk about like running out of ideas or something. I almost feel like if people say, you know, maybe you can run out of energy, but that's one thing. But, but the idea of running out of ideas almost just seems it's like you've closed off a tap or like you're not, you haven't hooked yourself up to something because it seems like there is something in the world that is just constantly evolving. Like, like, like it doesn't even make sense to imagine running out of ideas if you're in the right waters, which are there, are not hard to find. It's almost more like hard to be willing to find them. I was going to say you're like always immersed in this ambient strangeness because you're always displaced. And it's such a great place to be in because it really forces you to know, A, who you are. And it really forces you to interact with people in a way that is genuine. You know what I mean? Like you're not like going to be like, oh, I'm a fucking drifter. I'm a weirdo. I'm out of, you know, like you don't travel. You don't <laughs> yeah. travel to yeah. bug people out. You you travel to to connect and connect with people on a, on a much deeper level. Yet everything you do is has this very strange atmosphere because you have no context for it. And I think that's like the biggest thrill for traveling and for doing art in general. It's like you have to be willing to not get too comfortable in either role, right? Because on the one hand, it's like you can't, you certainly can't be like helpless. Tr yeah, right. You can't you can't be like I'm just a like you said. You know, you, there's a danger of latching on to the identity of being a drifter, which is itself a kind of like pseudo home. That it's like I'm you know I leave everything and like I don't ever make you know close connections or I don't ever even like take a project seriously, you know, you can drift from project to project and things like that, which you can see that actually becomes a form of stasis. 
On the other hand, if you go to the other extreme and you're like, I just live in this town and I never leave the town and I'm suspicious of anything outside the town, then you've also uh, like cemented yourself in a way and stopped growing. You know, so, so like this sort of, you know, I, I think the idea of, of being a drifter that we're, that we're trying to articulate here is like somewhere in between the two where you're not too married even to the identity of, of being a drifter so that you're able to really connect with people when you go there, you know, and you're not trying to just punk them or you're not trying to just trick them. Right. Like my, I have this series of um, stories about these guys, the brothers swim Bob, which I think will eventually be its own separate book, but there's a couple in the, in the drifter book, but they're, they represent some of my thoughts about the dangers of being, you know, in their case, like, like traveling performers, you know, but they always have this idea that they can like take advantage of the towns that they go to and escape unscathed. You know, that the fact that they're mobile and the people in the towns are stuck there gives them an advantage, mm -hmm. which never quite works out according to plan. You know, it's like in a way those stories are like cautionary tales to me about the danger of, of almost like, becoming too comfortable with the idea of yourself as a drifter. You know, the deeper thing is to like, can you always be uncomfortable? Well, I think it's also, I mean, there is the element of it being uncomfortable, but then there's how long can you drift from relationship to relationship without losing the ability to make meaningful connections? You know what I mean? Like it's something that you have to constantly work at. It's not like you can just not do it for 15 years because you're just bouncing from place to place, from person to person, and just think that you can just do it. People don't want to be your fucking friend right away. You lose, you lose that ability. It really puts you back into this place of stasis that you were probably trying to escape from all along. Exactly. And the same thing is like drifting from website to website, right? It's like you're not going to read anything unless you decide which site do I want to stay on mm. and actually read what's on here. You know, which I think actually relates to that idea of uh, like you have to choose what to invest your attention in, right? Because the danger of not choosing is, like you just said, you end up in this kind of weird stasis where you think you're moving on, right? Like take Twitter, for example. You think you're reading, you know, new tweet after new tweet after new tweet, which on the surface is like a lot more newness than reading the same book for a week. But obviously that that's an absurd thought, right? Like clearly yeah. reading the new book for a week will give you a lot more in your life than reading, you know, an equivalent amount of tweets. <laughs> totally. What, what right. crystallizes in your mind after reading a day of tweets? Nothing. A sense Nothing. of absurdism. Yeah. Right. Which is, I mean, that's like a medium is the message thing. But the idea that, you know, when people say I'm scrolling, if you ask someone, you know, what are you doing? And they say I'm scrolling Twitter or I'm watching Netflix. <laughs> that's it. That answers the question, right? You don't then ask them like, well, what are you reading? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or what, yeah, what are you reading or, about yeah. on Twitter? Like nothing. Right. Or, just... or even what are you watching on Netflix? That's even more perverse in a way, though, like Netflix has turned all the content on Netflix into just watching Netflix. I mean, that's quite sinister, I think. Oh, absolutely. And also making shows with the intention of them being ambient, where they're literally designed to be something you can have on in the background while being on your phone. Like I watched this show called The Queen's Gambit. And I wouldn't say that I like hated it. I don't want to like talk shit. And a lot of people liked it. But to me, there was like these short bursts of narrative where you saw the character doing something or going somewhere. And then there was her like playing chess. And those moments, you knew that there was, there was momentum, something was happening, but it wasn't 
you're just watching people moving chess pieces around on a board. You know, you could just be on your phone for that time because, you know, they're not actually playing chess. There's no, like, intensity. Nothing's at stake there. I just thought about how, like, how popular that show was and how that seemed like an elevated form of ambient content. And, yeah, there is something very (laughs) alarming about that. There's a New York Times article about this kind of idea of like smooth brain, right? And I was talking about like ASMR, CBD, uh, my year of rest and relaxation, you know, sensory deprivation tanks. It had a lot of different examples of like this cultural trend of people wanting the things they consume to just numb them out, you know, or just be about like reaching this kind of like mellow equilibrium, you know? But, but I actually think that that also, and maybe this is a kind of optimism coming through again, but that that also is unsustainable in the long run you know that some something will come out of that you can't like stay in the deprivation tank forever and maybe you can't right (laughs) but i have a kind of hope that you can't but it's not a wavelength you know there's no cultural place that you can hook on to to go to the next depth tank you know what i mean you're Uh it has to it has to build somehow absolutely yeah and i think that's you know why you gain some kind of power or some kind of self-confidence or some kind of knowledge by committing to something. Cause it's like, that's the only way that you can get to the next tank. You, you know what I mean? So, so yeah. it's like, it almost doesn't matter what it is, but I feel like if I were to, if someone asked me like, what's one piece of like life advice you would give to anyone, it would be try to get good at something, you know, and just not, not even for professional reasons, but it's like try to go through the frustration and the steps and the setbacks and everything else, and even the boredom maybe, that it takes to break through to the point where you feel like you're not a novice at whatever it is, because it's like then you can get to the next tank. And then it's like you have, um, you have a mode of attention that you can do something with, which means it's a mode of attention that you can you know, that's robust that you can actually put your attention in. And that's how you like going back to the seediness article. That's how you take ownership of your own attention is like not by having this dream that you could be totally free, but by accepting the reality that you can never be totally free, but you can choose if the way you're unfree is that you've decided to say, write a novel or make a film or you haven't made any decision. And then and then you're just drifting in like the first tank. Right, right. And as you become better at what you're trying to do or whatever your craft is, you start to establish more pathways. I wouldn't say out of it, but you just establish more pathways to either other people that appreciate what you're doing or you elevate your craft to another thing where you're like, oh, shit, this just opened me up to whatever, you know, like the 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 elite level of model trained builders you know like whatever it is yeah. it it it, it does continue to build and branch out and it, it it starts to open your world up that's exactly it that it's not that it reveals a way out of it but it reveals a way through it such that you come to see that almost anything can be a portal to a deeper realm of existence but only if you stick with it long enough like you have to do it. You can't go through it. You keep hitting walls and like at every wall you want to stop. And like a lot of people do stop, but it's like only by going through wall after wall after wall that you see how that thing can be a portal to 
you know, you could call it the infinite or the truth or whatever you want. Same thing with meditation, right? They're like at every step people will give up, <laughs> including me, <laughs> but people who, <laughs> but people who, you know, seemingly have gone through, I don't know if there's an end to it, but have gone through past some point are really like, you know, it truly is life changing. Oh, no, man. Uh, it's funny you bring that up. I just downloaded the other day. I was like feeling like I was going to have like a panic attack and I downloaded some sort of meditation 15 step thing. I like that there were steps, but I noticed like towards the end it had opening the third eye and, and transcendental. And I was like, oh, at least if I stick with this, which I haven't, there's some sort of potential payoff, you know, whether it's like a grift or bullshit or, or not. I like the idea that it is building into something deeper. Yeah. And maybe that goes back to a kind of, you know, the idea of like, I'm interested in in grifts also. I mean, I feel like that's something I, I write about a lot is like huckster characters and sort of, you know, showmen and swindlers and, and that kind of stuff. Maybe that's also part of why Americans are so um, so easily scammed is it's like we're all seekers in a way, right? So maybe something like Hollywood is like the ultimate scam or something like that. You know, or Trump's definitely a scam. The sense that there's something deep that we want. Like we've all internalized the idea that we should be able to have, you know, either great lives or, you know, lives of some kind of like unusual significance, right? That's part of the like American exceptionalism, I think. You know, and, whereas like and, a lot and of then somebody will yeah. bring you there. Yeah. And they'll bring you there quickly. That's yes. the problem. Yes. Right. That they'll get you there. Like, <laughs> right. You know, we love like miracle cures or, you know, fad diets or, you know, snake oil and, and all, you know, or Trump, right. That he's like, I, I personally will make America great again. Right. That it's like, that's a classic like Barnum and Bailey thing to, to say, you know yeah. what I mean? And, you know, with pyramid schemes and all that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, invest in this one stock and you'll, you'll, you know, be a millionaire overnight and, and whatever. <laughs> And, and I feel like that also is, in, I feel ambivalent about it because on the one hand, and that's why I like these kind of characters, I think, is because on the one hand, it's obviously taking advantage of people, you know, and, and actually all of, you know, the way that like the new American colonies were advertised to people like in the Netherlands and in England who had stayed back was already taking advantage of people, right? There was like an endless rash of like newspaper ads in like the, you know, late 1600s that was like, you know, gold discovered here, like come get your claim or the 1700s, you know, but it's like we have a long history of like attracting suckers. <laughs> yeah. But, <I> mean. <laughs> but there's something beautiful about it because it's like there is a real naivete, you know, the kind of like French cynicism in like a Welbeck or something, you know, is refreshing because you can be like a character like that isn't going to be taken for a ride. But there's also just something like sad about it because it's like there's just like all hope has gone out of it. You know, whereas there's a kind of American naivete that has a really ugly side. I feel like there's something beautiful about it, too. I think it's its optimism Mm -hmm. that there's an answer around the corner if you just stick with it or if you find it. Like, I think that's the thing that that I I feel like I notice most, especially when I travel to Europe. Mm -hmm. I think of myself as such an intensely pessimistic person, but when I travel they're always like oh you have that american optimism i'm like do i i guess i do i don't know <laughs> yeah oh yeah no and it can be very self-concealing you know like a lot of americans are probably more optimistic than they think they are or or maybe are optimistic in ways that they wouldn't consider to be optimism yeah i think for me it's just like i always 
my default is pessimism, but I always think there's another way out. Like I'm always mm-hmm. aware of another escape. Like I never feel like, like I'm truly stuck. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I can always do something, even if it's totally self-destructive to just shake things up and create a new path. Like not to say like I'm uh, some sort of wise sage, like I'm very good at like, burning my life down and starting over. But I feel like that's still a sense of optimism in doing that. Cause I don't ever feel like I'm just like going to sit around. Like I'm like, well, I might as well just f- fuck up everything and start over. <laughs> I think it has to be. I don't think you can do that if you have a sense of total despair. You know yeah. what I mean? Like true despair. And that's like the like Pink Floyd uh, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. You know what I mean? It's like you have, if you're really doing that, and you're like, why would I even try to change anything? That to me is a much deeper despair than I'm going to burn everything down and start over, which I guess is what people who came to America historically and maybe still thought, right? It's like, I had, you know, it's time for a new start. Right. right. And depression is just not being able to envision a future. I mean, there's a lot of definitions, but one could be a present that swells unto eternity. And that's why you can't, you can't envision the future. Absolutely. And a future where at least you're laying on your ass is still one that wasn't the, the one that you're currently in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that it's worth doing something, you know, that it's, that essentially it's always worth doing something. Right. So like the, the trip you were talking about this summer, it's like you can't know ahead of time what its value will be. But something told you that it would have some value. And it seems like it did. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it was amazing and it, but it was very, it was tough. It wasn't fun. It wasn't social. You know what I mean? Like it was, uh, overall, I was in a lot of seedy situations. I ended up having to squat places. I got stuck in like one, the gender reveal fire. I ended up in Oregon fire. Like it was, it was brutal, but it was also, at least I wasn't doing nothing. You know, at least I was doing that. But I kept you on for quite a while here. But this is a pretty awesome conversation. Let Absolutely. me end this with like one last question that I'm really curious about. But what's the most remote location you've ever been to? Like, where did you go where you felt totally untethered? Oh, man. Um, huh. I can think of two come to mind. One would be the center of the Australian outback, which is like you really feel like you could disappear and like no one would ever know. I mean, that, that's like, yeah, it's, it's a sense of remoteness that I wouldn't have thought possible. That's one. And the other uh, would be the top of Mount Ararat. So, so I took a gap year before college, actually we went to Australia and, and Turkey and, and various other places. Uh, and we hadn't really planned to climb it. We started in Istanbul and then we're, just traveled through Turkey and went out east. And then, you know, we'd read in the guidebook that like, you know, to climb Mount Ararat, you had to apply with some pilgrims bureau and get it, you know, it took six months and you had to have a meeting and all the stuff. So we're like, okay, we're not gonna climb it, but like, let's just go see it. So we went to the town where it is, you know, this town right on the um, border of Turkey and Iran. Uh, and we went to the town just to see it. And we were talking to this guy there and he's like, oh, like, did you come to climb the mountain? And we're like, no, you know, we need six months in the Pilgrim's Bureau and whatever. And he started laughing and he's like, dude, for 200 bucks, I'll take you up tomorrow. 
okay, let's do it. Uh, yeah, that was insane. That, that was like probably the wildest thing I've ever done. So we went with two friends uh, with this guy whose family, he lived in the town, but his family were like nomads on the mountain. And it took something like three days, like two nights and, and three full days of hiking. And we stayed with his family, you know, at a kind of like base camp the first night. And just everything about it was bizarre. Like they killed a goat and cooked it. And my friend who's been a lifelong vegetarian ate the heart. <laughs> I was pretty <laughs> proud of him for doing it. I don't think he's eaten meat before or since. Wow. And he did it. He kept it down. And he, he, he was okay. And then, yeah, and then we climbed and climbed. The second night we slept like on some like terrifying ledge that was like really scary. And then we climbed it the next morning. Yeah. And nice. yeah, I almost feel like it's one of those moments where you feel like you die and like maybe everything since you've been a ghost, like, like that next morning, you know, I was already kind of freaked out from sleeping on this ledge and I'm not like super great with heights. Uh, and so I asked the guide, I was like, is there any part of the next part of like today's hike? Is there any part that's dangerous? And he's like, Oh no, 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 you know, very safe, very safe. Maybe one part, very dangerous. And then very safe, very safe. <laughs> like, okay. Uh, and then so the whole time I was like terrified of when is this part coming and what's it going to be, you know? And then after we've been going for like a long time, I said, like, when is that really dangerous part coming up? And he's like, oh, we passed that hours ago. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I still don't know what it is. I have no idea. But <laughs> part of me feels like I died there. I don't know. But yeah, we made it to the top. And, you know, of course, we had uh, like a fantasy of, you know, we're going to get to the top and watch the sunrise and we'll, you know, see Iran. It'll be this whole glorious thing. And we got to the top and it was just like horrifying, like whipping wind, like utterly miserable. We stayed for like one second and ran back down. Oh, it still sounds pretty transformative. Absolutely. No, and it really, uh, yeah, it feels like a literal high point in, in my memories. That's awesome, man. Well, I want to thank you so much for uh, speaking with me. This was like a really electric conversation I, I really appreciate it likewise thanks for having me on this has been this has been great and i'm a big fan of the show thank you